hear the word of the Lord. And for those that are paying attention, I, I am adding a little extra to the text that's not in the bulletin. If you have a Bible, it's just a section above it. From starting from verse 39, it says this. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Ju Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. <clears throat> and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our father, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Pray with me. Merciful God in heaven, you give us your word because you love us, because you want us to know you and you want to know us, your people. I pray that we would know you this morning as we look at your word, that your spirit would enliven our hearts to hear and believe and turn to you for all good things. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You know, when, when Jen and I were uh, newly married, we had an opportunity to spend, <clears throat> I think it was a three, three and a half, four months uh, traveling Europe for a semester abroad that I had. And, uh, and it, you know, it wasn't always as romantic as it sounds, you know, sleeping in hostels and not having no money to do cool things, you know, gets old when you're in really beautiful places in the world. Um, but, you know, hanging out in Paris together, drinking wine under the Eiffel Tower, eating crepes, um, going for walks in the Swiss Alps, sitting on these, they had these little benches up in the Alps, you sit down with some brie cheese and some baguette and a bottle of, of wine and looking out at the, the Matterhorn. You know, it was worst ways to spend an afternoon. It was, it was pretty nice. Um, and one of the towns that we visited while we were doing this semester abroad was um, a town outside of Munich in, in Germany. And we visited this cathedral. And there's, in this cathedral, they had this a statue of, of Mary where, where many um, healings were attributed to her. And, uh, and they, they built this, you know, so they built this kind of uh, this house, small house around, around her. And uh, you had to wait in line to get in and, and, and see her. And there's many people that come from all over to see her. And, you know, I'd seen some strange things about Mary growing up in the, in the Lower Valley. There was this, uh, a, a newly made uh, and installed road sign that still had some oil on it. And when the rain fell, it created this kind of rainbow vision on the back of this sign. And people thought it was a, a Mary. 
Um, and so, you know, for months, drive by the sign, there'd be people kneeling with candles, lighting. So I've seen some strange stuff uh, in regards to Mary before in my life, but nothing like I saw in Germany. Um, because what people were doing is they were trying to pay penance for their sins. And the way they would do it is, depending on how bad their sin was, they would crawl on their hands and knees around, they had this little path around this little house. Uh, and if their sins were really bad, they'd put a cross on their back where they walked or crawled around. And they had different sizes of crosses that you could choose from, depending on how, how bad you thought your, your sin was. And, uh, you know, at first, as a young man, uh, who's maybe a little bit immature, um, I, I wanted to mock them. I wanted to make fun of them. I thought, this is ridiculous. How could you possibly think that this would do anything? And, uh, and then it, it, then it kind of gripped me what was happening and just how sad the scene was before me. Um, these people were coming from all over. Why? Because they were desperate for relief from their sin. They were desperate for relief from, from guilt, from sadness, from, from pain. These people were desperate for a revolution, um, for the evil powers uh, in this world to be upended, that so desperate they made a pilgrimage to this place, um, doing whatever they could to somehow earn favor with God trying to get that revolution that Mary sings about in her great song, right? The humble to be exalted, the hungry filled with good things, desperate for a world to change, they turn to Mary for help. Now, although I doubt uh, most of you here are probably uh, not looking to Mary for relief um, from the pains of this world, there are plenty other ways and things that we look to other than Jesus to help relieve our suffering in this world and our shame and our guilt from the you know, obvious culprits and booze and sex to the less obvious ones and numbing our pain with shopping. You know, when you start to feel a little pain, there's the Amazon button and you just go buy something new and it makes you feel better or you give yourself over to exercise and health to an unhealthy degree. Um, there's so many different ways that we attempt to quiet the voices of, of shame in our life, to quiet the sin that we feel, to, to, to try to control the chaos of evil in this world. Um, and all these things that we turn to, if we're honest, they actually work for a moment. That's why we go to them, because they actually do something for us. Um, but they actually can't bring about the revolution that Mary sings about, where kingdoms are upended and evil is vanquished for forever. And I think for us, even entering into you know, the Christmas season, uh, it, it doesn't help that oftentimes... Uh, any guilt or shame or family issues that we have are often magnified in this season, right? Family divisions are felt more with empty chairs around the table. Loneliness is amplified when there's only one stocking hanging from the fireplace and you had to fill it yourself. The question I think before us is, where is it that you turn to deal with the world that's in chaos? Who do you look to to fix a broken world? Maybe a question that's good for us in light of this text is, who did Mary look to to save the world? She wasn't looking to herself, was she? She was looking to her son. And I know that because of some of the weird Mary worship and um, I would say extra biblical legends that surround Mary, um, the, in the Protestant church, we often ignore her because we're worried that, hey, if we start talking about Mary, are people gonna think that we're worshiping her? Um, and so because of that, we actually don't talk about her. We kind of like, oh yeah, Mary, Mother Jesus, cool. Let's move on to just talk about Jesus. Uh, and because of that, we actually don't rightly esteem her um, for fear of looking or accidentally worshiping her. 
Um, nor do we often look to her for wisdom on where to turn in a world filled with darkness. But I actually think she has much to offer us for this. I mean, what, what might it look like for us to actually rightly honor her, for us to call her blessed, to look to her for wisdom and how we might live in this present age? And I think in the passage before us, in this song before us, um, I think she has much to teach us. And, uh, and so we're going to look through, the, through this text of, of Mary and her Magnificat, um, looking at the person of Mary and seeing how the themes come up, come out as we look at Mary. So barring from uh, many others, we're going to ask just two simple questions this morning. The first is this, why did Mary sing? You know, what, what made her bubble up with song? There's, for everyone in this room, even those of you who say, I don't sing, uh, there's going to be that some, there's going to be something that would cause you to sing. What is that thing that caused Mary to sing? And what does she sing about? And uh, in this, I think we'll gain profound insight into why Jesus came and what his purpose was. So first, why did Mary sing? What, what made her burst out into song? Um, and before we jump into the, the text, just to catch us up to this moment where we're at, I know we all know this story so well, but you know, sometimes you know stories so well that you actually forget them and you forget the order of them. So I'm just going to help us get where we're at. So right before this moment when Mary goes and, and visits her relative uh, Elizabeth, Mary gets visited by um, an, an angel, Gabriel. And this angel, Gabriel, goes to her and he says, hey, Mary, you're going to give birth to the Son of God. Um, he's going to come and save the world. And, you know, her response is one of belief. She says this, she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. It's stunning um, for her to respond this way uh, because for one, she's not yet married. And for two, she's a, a virgin. And let me just say, especially back then, it didn't go well for people who got pregnant without being married. And, uh, and, and then you claim to be a virgin you know, they would think something fishy is going on there, right? If you tried to tell someone that you're a virgin and you were pregnant, they would look at you like you're crazy because that's not how the world works. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis, he actually writes about this and, and uses this kind of thing to talk about how often in his time, the, you know, modernists would criticize people who believed in miracles like the virgin birth and because they believed that, listen, back in Jesus' time, they weren't enlightened like we are, so they believed these ridiculous things like virgin births. Um, they, they were more prone to believe crazy things um, that didn't have a rational explanation. And Lewis uses this to point out, listen, Joseph knew exactly how this stuff worked. He knew that virgins did not uh, give birth. That's why he was actually going to call off the wedding, right? He's like, listen, I'm just going to call this thing off. I'm going to find somebody else. Um, and, it, and it took an angel's intervention in his own dream to convince him of the truth that she was indeed a virgin. So it was just as crazy for a virgin to get pregnant then as it is now. And here she finds herself, this, this young girl, a virgin. She's from a poor family. And we know she's from a poor family because later in Luke, when they go to the temple, they offer a sacrifice of two uh, pigeons, which is um, what was required for families of lesser means. And it's to this young girl, um, this young girl from this poor family who is a virgin, who was not yet married, that the Lord makes a promise to give her a seed, to give her a child. And what does Mary do right after this scene happens? Well, verse 39 tells us, it says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. 
It's this wild scene where she runs, right? She runs to her relative Elizabeth uh, with haste. And as she runs to her, her relative and Elizabeth to talk to her about what just happened to her, um, you know, girls are always better at sharing this good news, good news with other girls. And guys are like, oh, yeah, this thing happened. I, I don't even remember what happened. Um, but she runs to Elizabeth to share with her. And this is what Elizabeth says to her in verse 42. He sa- she says this. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. What's happening here is Elizabeth is a second witness of what's happening inside of Mary's womb. She's a second witness to, to corroborate what the angel had said to her. Right? Mary believed the angel says she had deep belief and faith, but in Elizabeth's being filled with the Spirit, she confirms what the angel has already told her. And how cool is this scene between Elizabeth and Mary? Elizabeth was, if you remember, was once barren, unable to have children, until the Lord gave her a child, and this once barren womb is meeting this virgin womb that has also been made fruitful from the hand of the Lord, right, coming in contact with this with, with, with the Lord who, who, who gives fruitfulness from barrenness to life, right? from, from being void and form, formless to, to being formed and filled. I mean, what's happening here is this creation, garden language is happening, hinting at this new creation that is being birthed, that is growing. The, the connection to Genesis 1 and Adam and Eve is, is thick. The long-awaited Redeemer is coming. And in this confirmation, there's this profound Trinitarian statement that's being made in in verse uh, 43, right, she says, uh, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Right, the mother of Lord is, is Yahweh. So Mary is the mother of Yahweh. And then at the end of this, she says, and blessed is the one, is she who believed that there'd be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So which is, it? Is, is, this, is the Lord promising the birth or is the Lord the one being born? The answer is yes, it's, it's, it's both are true. The Lord is fulfilling his promise by himself being the one that is born of Mary. And this Messiah who has been born is unlike any other who have come before. The Lord has sent many prophets to come to speak to his people. But now in this one that is coming, he is coming himself. Right? As if a virgin birth isn't a miracle enough, God is now being born as a human, fully God fully man to come and rescue his people. And Elizabeth's words are a powerful moment of confirmation with Mary. What happened with the angel uh, wasn't just this thing in her head. She didn't just make it up, but it was real. And this is the confirmation that she needed. And this is the confirmation that actually leads Mary to sing, right? It's not after the angel's visit that she started singing, but it was after her visit to Elizabeth that it, it made what was happening inside of her and to her, it kind of made that truth sink in a little bit. And I think as just a, a quick um, early application of what's happening here that we can learn from this is that God confirms his calling in our lives in and through community. You need fellowship. You, you, we find the Lord in community with others. Um, as as Tim Keller puts it, if, if you think the Lord is telling you to do something, shut up until someone else 
confirms it for you. Um, which is, seems like a simple enough thing, but you know, we probably all have stories in our life where someone came up and told you something crazy that God told them that has nothing to do with real life. Like Jen, when she was pregnant with Hudson and she was in the hospital, she had a lady come up and said, oh man, God's gonna, God told me to tell you that you're gonna have a girl. If you don't know anything about my family, Hudson is a boy, right? It's this crazy, crazy thing to tell somebody. And people tell pregnant women a lot of crazy things. Sorry, pregnant people. We're always touching you and saying weird things to you. It's just people are uncomfortable, I guess, with pregnant women. But um, also, you know, the, there was a Spurgeon, um, the great preacher Spurgeon, who once after a service had someone come up to him and say, the Lord told me that I'm going to preach in your pulpit next week. He's like, no, he didn't. Like, that's not, because he, he would have told me too. Like, that's not, this is not how it works. Um, we need community to help discern God's voice in our lives. And um, uh, so this is more of an aside application, but the Lord confirms his calling in our lives in community. That's why we need each other. Even Mary, the mother of Jesus, needed this kind of confirmation for her. She needed to hear from someone else that what the angel said was true. And the Spirit of God comes and speaks to Elizabeth and confirms this truth that Yahweh himself is being born from Mary. And it's at this point, after this amazing truth is conformed, that the, the coin drops for Mary. This is really happening. happening. She's realizing, at least to a degree of the magnitude of what's happening, like this long way to Messiah is coming and I'm going to give birth to him. It's a wild thing that, that, that overwhelms her. And whenever we're overwhelmed with something, we can't help but burst into song. And the first Christmas hymn is, is ever uh, penned. And, you know, there's something, one of the unique things that happens around this birth of Jesus is the amount of angelic activity. Just, there's, there's more activity of angels appearing and showing up and doing stuff here in the birth of Jesus than anywhere else in Scripture. In fact, you can fact check me on, on this next one. I'm pretty sure it's true. Um, that the only time the angels sing on earth is actually in the, this narrative of the birth of Jesus. The other times they're singing, they're actually in, in heaven. You can tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, if I'm wrong, I'm only a little bit wrong. Um, but the angels are preparing the way, and, and around the birth of Jesus, people burst into song. Uh, it hap happens all over, people singing. Um, uh, people bursting into song, and, and it's what people do when they're overwhelmed with emotions. It's a human thing. You know, like I said earlier, even those in you in this room who say, I'm just not a singer, I'm just not going to sing, I know there's that one song that comes on, and you drop your jaw, and you let it out, it's probably a Taylor Swift song, you don't want anyone to know, but I know it's true, um, you start shaking it off, you know. Uh, we all have that song that we will sing, and you all know how good it feels just to drop the jaw and let it out. It feels good. It's one of the most human things we do. We respond to emotion. We respond to events. We respond to being overwhelmed with singing. Uh, and Mary, on the cusp of giving birth with Yahweh, is overwhelmed. And she bursts out rejoicing. The long-awaited Messiah is coming. She can't contain her, her voice, and, and she bursts out in song. So secondly, what, what is this song that she's saying? Well, what does she sing about? <clears throat> well, it's kind of, you can break this song up into kind of two different parts. The first part is you can kind of see it within the pronouns of the song. She starts by singing about herself and then quickly moves on to singing about God and, and what he's going to do in this birth of, of her son. So verse 46 begins, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and Mary's spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. 
What's the first thing she notices about herself in relation to God? He's not just the savior of the world, but she says, my savior. She needs to be saved. It's the first thing she notices about herself, and her son is her savior. I think this is where our, our friends in the, in the Catholic church and those crawling on their knees need the message of the Magnificat. Mary needs to be saved too. Right? Perfect people don't need saving. Uh, this message of revolution she needed for herself. Right? She has no power to, to heal or remove the guilt of sin. She is just like us and that she needs to be rescued from sin and from death. But to challenge us in our tradition, she's also to be esteemed. What does verse 48 say? For the, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. You know, the first thing she notices here, though, is like, I can't believe you would choose me in my humble estate of no means of not even being married yet, and you choose my womb to bring about the rebirth of the world. That's incredible. But this is what God does, right? He esteems the things that we often ignore um, and ignores the things that we often esteem. And, uh, and what does she say about herself in response to this? She says, all generations are going to call me blessed. That's how far he is raising me up um, so that all generations will remember me. To which you might say, listen, Mary, it's one thing to let other people say that kind of stuff about you, but you're not supposed to say this stuff about yourself. That's a little conceited, isn't it? Who do you think you are? Oh, the mother of Jesus, the son of God. That sounds, sounds important. Um, and at the end of the day, she can say this stuff, not because she thinks she's awesome, but why is she blessed? Because the Lord has made her blessed. And she says this in verse 49. She says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. She knows it's a work of God. She knows it's his work. It's his might, it's his strength. And so here you find that on the one hand, she needs Jesus just as much as you and I do. She needs a savior. And on the other hand, she is to be honored. Give thanks for her obedience, for her faithfulness to the Lord, to, to listen to the Lord when he called her. I mean, and it's no small risk she took in this pregnancy. Uh, think about all the things that people might have said about her, to her. She was an, an amazing woman that we should rightly talk about and emulate and try to be like, just like all the other greats of Scripture that we, we look to as examples of faithfulness. And it's at this point, though, that, that Mary's song begins to shift, and, and she starts talking about the work of God. And, and, and the thing that she shows us is that the birth of Jesus is going to fulfill every promise that has ever been made to his people. Uh, he is our yes and amen from Adam to Abraham to, to even today. And you, you see this at the, at the end of the song. Um, she kind of summarizes this like this in verse 55. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This kind of ending sums up everything. That, that she is restating in song form all the promises of old. All the promises we've been going through as we've been studying Genesis uh, in the fall and looking at Abraham, all those promises of land, of people, of blessing, this kingdom, of worldwide upheaval, of a, the revolution to end revolutions, that's all going to happen with Jesus. So what does that look like? Well, she begins in, in verse 51 saying this, speaking of her son, that he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the th thoughts of their hearts. She begins with, you know, God comes when he remakes the world. He scatters the proud and gathers the humble. 
He brings down the kings and the kingdoms of this world, right? He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Uh, it says, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. It's basically anyone who thinks they are good enough or rich enough or strong enough for this kingdom, he scatters. He sends them away. And it's those who know their need of a savior that he graciously gathers in. And there's so much good stuff that we could focus on. It, it almost sounds like the makings of a revolutionary manifesto. And, and actually, throughout history, there are different theological movements have actually grabbed this and made it their kind of this manifesto of revolution. And uh, so much so that in the 17th and 18th century, the, the monarchs in Europe actually banned the singing. A few different monarchs banned the singing of the Magnificat because they were worried it would, it would um, uh, give the people ideas that their thrones needed to be over, overthrown. And they didn't want that. They didn't want them thinking about taking over their thrones. And um, so they banned it in and, uh, and its seditious nature. And um, speaking on this, you know, uh, one, of, one of my favorites, Peter Lightheart, points out that although the Magnificat is seditious, uh, you know, undermines many earthly authorities, to interpret it to be saying that all, uh, all authority always needs to be replaced, like always this perpetual cycle of overthrowing those in power would be really wrong because there's always going to be people in positions and places of power, and that's not bad. It's actually how God designed things. There's still a throne at the end. It's just Jesus is sitting on it. Um, it, would, it would kind of be like saying to always have money, to always be rich is, is always wrong. Um, uh, but it is about what one does with their status of power or wealth that makes it right or wrong. Think about the, the rich men who, who buried Jesus, who used his tomb so Jesus could be laid there, or the, the wealthy widows in the New Testament church who funded the early church and made it possible. Or think about the, the powers in the Old Testament. K King David and Solomon, when they were at their heights, they used their thrones for good. And when they did, there was prosperity like the world has never seen. So the, the political theory in, in Mary's song in no way says that power itself is wrong. It's not. God invented it. He is all-powerful. What she is saying is that she doesn't want the proud to lead, but the humble of heart. I mean, this should be a song that the church learns to sing with gusto, crying out for God to cast down evil leaders. This song is actually only seditious to the proud ones that sit on thrones. To the rest of us, it is a song of, of hope of renewal, of chaos to turn to order. And remember uh, the political time of, of Mary, um, that she is singing this. It's a time when, when it was, there was a series of different King Herods that, that reigned, and the, the Herod that was reigning in her time was an evil man who was willing to slaughter hundreds, if not thousands, of innocent boys to stop the birth of Jesus. So much so that they had to go into exile in Egypt before they returned. God will and should absolutely bring them off their thrones because we're a people who we desire righteousness, right? We want righteousness and righteous kings on the throne who use their power and influence for good. So what she's singing about here is the fulfillment of everything that was promised to Abraham, this land, this people, a blessing. What she's singing about is a kingdom with a king who will come and sit on his throne forever, establishing everlasting peace and prosperity, and a people who are brought into that kingdom, a kingdom where all evil ceases. I mean, it's the fulfillment of the, the long-awaited promise given to Eve that through her womb would come one to crush the head of the serpent. This is her Christmas song. I don't think it's the sentimental Christmas song you often hear 
in this season about snow and reindeer and hot cups of cocoa or even maybe some of the songs that get sung in, in churches. But Mary's song about Christmas is a song about a cosmic war. A song in the heat of battle. This is a song you and I need to hear because we live in the real world. Uh, we live in a world that has much darkness, much sin, much despair, and to sing songs that pretend like everything in this world is fine, and oh, look, a little baby Jesus comes, and he's fine too, and we're all fine together. That doesn't help anybody, does it? What we need is we need this world to die and a new one to rise. And that's what this song is about. That's what Advent, and that's what Christmas is about. It's about the revolution where Jesus comes and raids the prince of this world's house and renders him powerless. And although we don't always like to talk about it, um, this is a deeply political thing. You can't ignore the political nature of Jesus coming. He's a, Herod was trying to kill him. Why? Because he didn't want him to overthrow him. Because he heard he was a king that was being born. Uh, this long-awaited Savior is coming. He's not just trying to save our hearts. He is trying to save our, our hearts and our spirits, right? But this is not just a spiritual thing. This is a very physical thing that is being uh, redeemed. Uh, from our hearts to our community to our, our public life together, our common life together, this is what Mary is singing about. It's funny because we sing these songs about Mary as this, you know, Mary was this mild person. She doesn't sound so mild, does she? She sounds fierce. She sounds more like Joan of Arc than anything. Um, she was humble, but fierce because she had a profound trust in God. She trusted his word. But sometimes I, I do wonder though, with all her fierceness, with all she sang about in this incredible prophetic song, which I don't know if you noticed, this is all like past tense stuff happening here. This has happened, she's saying. Um, Part of me wonders if she actually fully understood everything that she was singing and how it would actually come to pass and what it meant for her song to be fulfilled with Jesus. Because I'm guessing she did not expect to see her son hanging on a cross, dying. I mean, I imagine her seeing Jesus on the cross, recalling some of the words of the song and what she said would happen from him. Maybe she wondered how her words would come true with him dying there. Would her prophecy be just another one that's unfulfilled yet? Was Jesus just another ordinary prophet in the line of prophets to come that we needed to look for another? Because little did she or any of his other followers know just how Jesus would come to humble the proud and overturn the thrones of the evil one. But he overturns the thrones of the world not through his uh, a show of strength with a sword, but through the humility of a wooden throne, which was his cross. Through the instrument that the proud used to humble people, he submitted himself and used that to humble the proud. Though being humbled, he himself was exalted on that cross. And this is the kind of one of the deepest principles of Christianity is that through death, life comes. It's often the darkest moments of our life and the deepest shames and despairs. It's in those places that the light shines the brightest. It's through the tomb that he emerges to bring about the rebirth of all creation. It is being humbled that we are raised up. It is being emptied that we are filled. It is by recognizing your neediness that you are saved. And we need this because this is the gospel truth that Mary's song has pointed us to, that you cannot, with all your might, with all your prayers, you cannot save yourself. 
We need a revolution that will overturn all the evils in this world and, not, and, and, and the way into it is not just feeling sorry for your sin or trying to pay penance. It isn't crawling on your hands and knees. It isn't through wealth or status or, or thrones or any ordinary means. I thank God for that because if it was about those things, we would never be able to do enough to be saved. But the gospel that Mary is telling us about and singing about says, I am needy. I have nothing to offer. Come and save me. The gospel says with Mary, I need a savior. On the one hand, it says, my riches and my status can't buy what I need. Uh, right, my, my position of power can't persuade God to give me a seat of power. Now, on the other hand, it says, listen, my poverty and lack of position also don't disqualify me either. It is Jesus alone who qualifies us to be part of this kingdom. And only those who are humbly like Mary can actually receive this from Christ. Only Jesus can give me what I need. And this is what Jesus comes to do. He comes to freely give you what you need. Are you hungry? Good. He comes to feed the hungry with bread that will never grow stale, but you can only taste it unless you know your need of it, unless you know that you are hungry. Are you poor? Good. He comes to bring you riches without number, but these riches can only be given to you when you understand your inability to buy the kingdom for yourself. Are you humbled in life? Has life just trampled you down to where you are humbled. Good. Jesus comes to lift you up with him, to give you a place and a seat of honor like you could never imagine, but he can only do that when you recognize your need for him. What Mary teaches us about is the deep truths of the gospel, that we are deeply needy people, that we know that we're needy and we try so hard to fill those needs with all the various things, trying to gain our own power, trying to gain our own wealth, trying to gain our own food, and it's not that food and power and wealth, those things are not bad things. Those are gifts from the Lord. But it's only in learning how to give those things up, only in laying those things down that you can be filled because it's, that's how Jesus works. It's in giving up his life that he gave life to the many. It is by humbling himself to the point of death on the cross that he was able to rise again and conquer death and gather us up with him. And that's what he wants for you. He wants to feed you. He wants to raise you up with him. And for us, the way that happens is to follow in the way of Mary, to believe. And then in community, together, we learn how to reinforce those deep truths that we know, to believe together, to remember these deep truths. And as we do, the Lord is remaking this world in his image through his people. May we be a people who join with the song of Mary, who understand our need of our Savior, and turn to him alone to redeem us and make us whole. Pray with me.